0: Hi, I'm Yusuf Zine. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So, my medical practice in the early days uh, was relatively unremarkable, with the exception of the fact that we were all preparing.
2: Patrick Phillips spent the first part of 2020 intently following the news. So obviously we're seeing what was going
1: on in China and Italy and and trying to prepare as much as we could, although all the information seemed to change pretty rapidly.
2: But it took a while for COVID-19 to make its way to Engelhart, the small Ontario town where Dr. Phillips worked.
1: We had very little COVID, uh, next to none really in our area. And so I would say actually, It was pretty dead. Our our volumes in the emergency department decreased quite a bit.
2: Despite those low COVID numbers, the hospital switched over to telemedicine, conducting almost all of their non-urgent care remotely. By the fall, Dr. Phillips was wondering whether that had been a terrible mistake.
1: Although less people were coming in, people were coming in later in their disease course. I had one patient come in who was treated by back pain by their family doctor for months and they were put on opioids and everything and what that patient interpreted was back pain as soon as i put my hands on them and examined them i saw was a massive tumor that was missed because they didn't get a physical exam and i saw patient after patient i was getting like almost once a week for a string there and i'm like this is not normal
2: and it wasn't just people with physical ailments that were slipping through the cracks
1: we were seeing an uptick in addictions suicidality and depression and what was most alarming to me was seeing a big uptick in suicidal children.
2: As all of this unfolded, Dr. Phillips started reading the scientific literature on COVID-19. He wanted to know if he was missing something, if there was another way he could be treating this virus.
1: Like, what are some possible treatments? What are lifestyle measures that are linked to people being hospitalized or dying? And so I started to pay attention to those. and and it was striking to me because they were not at all lining up with what i was hearing coming out of public health one example would be uh, vitamin d levels something like 80 percent of people who were hospitalized had low vitamin d levels and that was one that it struck me quite hard because it's such a benign intervention so why were we not <laughs> promoting that and when i tried to Message like our hospital and things like that just kept getting shut down without any
2: really good explanations. Dr. Phillips became increasingly frustrated with the directives coming from public health.
1: Why are you just locking down when there's other things that we can do? Like, so that started to bother me, and that's when I I decided I need to speak out on some of these things.
2: So he took to Twitter, calling out public health and promoting research that challenged the scientific consensus. But he didn't stop there. He started telling some of his patients about promising new treatments for COVID, ones that hadn't been approved yet.
1: So there was a patient who came in who was diagnosed with COVID. And at that time, we had about 30 to 40 studies on ivermectin, showing if you aggregate them in a meta-analysis, reduce the mortality by about uh, at least 50%.
2: Ivermectin, which you probably heard about during the pandemic, is actually a drug that kills parasites. It was initially designed for use in animals, like dogs and horses, but has been used on humans since the late 80s.
1: There have been almost no deaths from it ever, which is much safer than Advil or Tylenol. I have a duty to my patient to tell them what I believe would treat them the best. And so I talked to this patient about that, told her this is not the normal protocol, but I believe that this is the safest and most effective treatment that's out there right now. And so I prescribed her ivermectin.
2: A few months later, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario announced that they were taking disciplinary action against Dr. Phillips. They alleged that he'd engaged in, quote, Disgraceful, dishonourable, or unprofessional conduct by making misleading, incorrect, or inflammatory statements about vaccinations, treatment, and public health measures for COVID-19.
1: They're saying that I was promoting views that are not generally accepted in the medical community.
2: The college also alleged that Dr. Phillips is, quote, incompetent in his care of patients. In June of 2023, they revoked his medical license. But not everyone agrees that Patrick Phillips is an irresponsible doctor who deserves to be censured. A crowdfunding campaign for his legal defense has brought in almost $50,000, and many of the donations come with messages of support. One praised him for showing integrity where many other doctors won't. Another said, thank you, Dr. Phillips, for all you're doing to help us keep Canada a democracy. And someone thanked him for his courage to stand up and fight against this tyranny when so many have remained silent. Depending on who you ask, Patrick Phillips is either a negligent doctor risking his patients' lives by espousing misinformation, or he's a brave truth teller, putting his livelihood on the line to speak truth to power. So, which is it? The answer might be more complicated Than you think.
3: I'm Taylor Owen. And I'm
2: Sapria Devetti. On this season of Screen Time, we're trying to figure out how we ended up in a world where facts are fluid and your reality is a reflection of your ideology.
3: From TVO Today, Antica Productions, and the Center for Media, Technology, and Democracy at McGill University, this is Screen Time the battle for reality.
0: It is such a bizarre situation. And and I really, I'm a little obsessed with ivermectin, as you could probably tell.
3: This is Timothy Caulfield. He's a Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy at the University of Alberta.
0: The ivermectin story is fascinating because, again, we don't have to pull our punches, right? We have so many good clinical trials now. We have a robust body of evidence that pretty definitively tells us it doesn't work in the context of COVID.
3: But that wasn't always the case. In the early days of the pandemic, when Dr. Phillips was prescribing it, there were some promising studies involving ivermectin. In April of 2020, Australian researchers found that ivermectin blocked coronaviruses in cell cultures. But they had to use a really high dosage, so high that it could have been dangerous for humans. More recently, though, it's become pretty clear that ivermectin just doesn't work. In 2022, Two large randomized control trials, one in Brazil and one in the US, both showed that ivermectin is not an effective way to treat COVID. And the CDC, the FDA, and the World Health Organization have all made public statements that ivermectin cannot and should not be used to treat COVID-19. But if the evidence is unequivocal, why were so many people convinced that ivermectin was a miracle cure?
0: You know, I, I think people don't realize the degree to which this is about money so if you look at some of the the most prominent voices in the anti-vax community they're selling products you know they're selling supplements they're selling other kinds of ways to boost your immune system i'm putting that in quotes and they're also trying to build a brand and it's so much about money that now these actors are fighting amongst themselves. They're suing each other because <laughs> there's so much money to be made. Uh, so it's not this noble righteous cause as they like to view themselves and as they present themselves to the public, you know, these brave voices that are fighting the good fight on your behalf. That's not the case at all. This is about money. This is about ego. This is about branding.
3: And it's not just about ivermectin. In fact, peddling ivermectin as a treatment for COVID could be viewed as simply the latest version of a grift that goes back decades.
0: A lot of the COVID conspiracy theories, especially around vaccination, you know, they were around kind of before before COVID. You know, vaccines cause infertility. Vaccines do more harm than good. Vaccines are bad for kids. They existed before, and the actors used COVID as an opportunity to make them even more dominant. Before it had been announced that a vaccine was coming,
4: the anti-vaxxers were planning and plotting their rhetoric in order to undermine the vaccine.
3: Imran Ahmed is the chief executive of the CCDH, the Center for Countering Digital Hate. He and his team have spent years looking into anti-vax content and into the people who profit from it.
4: Well, it became very clear that they were producing really high-quality content. Now, to produce really high-quality content that requires money, and as soon as we started tracking the money, we realized that actually these are sophisticated actors with LLCs and charities behind them. That This was really an industry. The Pandemic Profiteers is a report that CCDH produced in 2021 which showed that the anti-vax industry had annual revenues of at least $36 million back then. And that was really looking backwards at their pre-pandemic revenues. Since then, they've grown considerably.
3: And when Imran's team dug a little deeper, they found that two thirds of all the anti-vax content on Facebook and Twitter can be traced back to just 12 people.
4: They're not household names, but they are, if you are targeted by the algorithm, Possibly the only one who has household recognition is Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and only because his father was Robert F. Kennedy.
3: Imran and his team published their findings in a report they called The Disinformation Dozen. Now, as a quick aside, if someone unintentionally shares false information, that's called misinformation. But if they know the information is false and they spread it with the intent to mislead people, that's called disinformation. So the difference between the two is intent. But making that distinction is tricky because it's very hard to know what someone actually believes or what their motivations might be.
4: The question I'm asked a lot is, is this economically motivated or is this ideologically motivated? Well, I don't know, but what I can tell you is, it's curious how much money they're making.
3: And they are making a lot of money. Robert F. Kennedy, Jr., brings in a quarter of a million dollars a year as the chairman of his anti-vaccine organization, Children's Health Defense. And an osteopathic physician named Joseph Mercola, who the New York Times called the most influential spreader of coronavirus misinformation, has a net worth of over $100 million. How would someone like a Kennedy or a Mercola financially benefit from this kind of content?
4: So there's a number of mechanisms that are used to generate revenues. You know, Joe McCullough sells supplements, for example. You've got RFK Jr. writing books about vaccines. You've got subscription-only websites, subscription-only forums, subscription-only events. This is an industry that's making money in lots and lots of different ways, constantly thinking about how to monetize the audiences that they've managed to build for themselves.
3: Imran pinpoints the genesis of the modern anti-vax movement to 1998 when a British doctor named Andrew Wakefield infamously and incorrectly asserted that there was a link between the MMR vaccine and autism.
4: And since then, this industry of people who are desperate for attention and greedy for money, don't forget Wakefield was paid to preselitize disinformation about MMR and autism that this industry has grown exponentially since then, adding to it new talent. When anti-vaxxers saw COVID happen, they realized it was a chance for them to break through into the mainstream. The game is really simple for them. With any disease that comes along, what they do is they minimize the effects of the disease. They use it to cite the dangers of vaccines. They use those two narratives to undermine faith in The medical profession. And that is a playbook that they've continued to use throughout the pandemic itself. In fact, we caught them speaking to each other in a conference prior to the vaccine being launched in which they discussed exactly how to weaponize those tactics on social media.
3: If you've ever stumbled across an anti-vax meme, you'd be forgiven for not assuming it was the product of a multi-million dollar industry. Like most memes, they tend to have a distinct DIY quality. But Imran says that that amateur aesthetic belies a deeper sophistication.
4: They've been able to test out different approaches, different identities. So one guy targets the right, one guy targets the liberal left, one guy targets new age moms. And they've been extremely good at exploiting new technologies. Joe Macola, for example, has a facility in the Philippines that he uses to produce the memes that are then shared by millions of people around the world i think it's an example of how fantastic they've been at undermining our information security and i think part of the reason for that is that there is a fundamental weakness in our information ecosystem and that weakness is the inability of social media platforms which connect 4.5 billion people on earth to police their own ecosystem, to their own rules. I mean, they have rules against all of this, and yet they're incapable and unwilling to enforce them.
3: It's difficult to say why the social media companies have chosen to leave so much misinformation up on their platforms. To be fair, there are real challenges with policing speech online, particularly around something like COVID, where the science is evolving so rapidly. But regardless of whether these companies are unwilling, or just unable to moderate the content on their platforms, one thing is clear. There is a lot of misinformation online.
4: Look, misinformation engages people. We like to talk about bullshit for some reason whether that is to say, I agree, or to say, I think that's utter nonsense. So good information coming from reputable health authorities gets very little engagement. Disinformation gets enormous amounts of engagement. And that, because of the way the platforms work, because they only care about one metric, which is what keeps people on platforms, that has made disinformation incredibly valuable to them. We calculated in 2021 that the anti-vax industry is worth $1.1 billion a year to big tech. And hey, that's a hell of a reason not to change things, isn't it? For the last 15 or 20 years, we've been running an experiment of what happens if we outsource our information ecosystem to a small number of private providers and trust that the market will do its magic. And it turns out that what it will lead to is really a degradation of our information ecosystem. The degradation of our information ecosystem driven by the greed and laziness of a few small companies who now dominate that space, who are the primary people who control how we share information, how we create community, how we negotiate our values, even what we call facts. And it is time that democracy reasserts itself against these companies, which have caused so much harm in so many different ways. It's almost incalculable.
0: This is largely not entirely a social media phenomenon and there's a lot of studies that that back that up. So yeah, it is Twitter, uh, it is Instagram, it is Facebook, it is TikTok, increasingly so, (laughs) it's TikTok. But it's also podcasters, you know, and uh, all of these new mediums have really changed the way misinformation is spread and conspiracy theories are spread.
2: Timothy Caulfield has been studying the spread of misinformation for decades, and he's seeing the same things as Imran.
0: I think our information environment is so noisy right now. And in a noisy information environment, there's incentives to play to the extremes, to be a loud signal. And the other element that is relevant here is ideology, right? There's a growing body of evidence that tells us that increasingly this is about ideology. You know, who would have guessed that ivermectin would be an ideological flag? I mean, that doesn't even make sense, right? But if you could go back three years and tell yourself that ivermectin is going to be an ideological flag, I mean, how would you even explain that?
2: Again, the answer may have something to do with social media. In an effort to keep you engaged, Platforms like Facebook and YouTube will push you increasingly extreme and divisive content. Content that serves to reinforce your pre existing beliefs, regardless of whether or not those beliefs are grounded in reality. So, if you are
0: in a social media echo chamber that placed your ideology, it becomes about the ideology and not the scientific facts, right? So, you know, you come for the ideology and you stay despite the science free lunacy.
2: This, at least in part, is probably why people are still talking about bunk COVID cures like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine.
0: We did a study on on how the hydroxychloroquine debate played out on Twitter. And the debate about the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine was totally about ideology. You know, they weren't talking about the science. They were talking about Donald Trump. They were talking about ideology and rights and that kind of language and not the science. And we're seeing that play out again and again and again.
2: Although the problem seems to be getting worse, Timothy points out that misinformation has always been wrapped up in ideology.
0: There's good research that tells us in the 70s, it was the Democrats who were suspicious of science. You know, we just came out of the Vietnam War, and you know, we just came from you know Woodstock and the hippie generation, and there was this great suspicion from the left of
2: science. You can still see traces of this in the modern wellness movement, with people like actress Gwyneth Paltrow and her lifestyle brand, Goo. I mean, think of GMO
0: misinformation, right?
2: But generally speaking, distrusting science... And in particular, distrusting vaccines is no longer in vogue amongst progressives.
0: We have seen this migration take place. And one of my very favourite examples of it is the uh, Marin County flip. Marin County in California, it sits outside of San Francisco. It's an incredibly wealthy community, heavily, heavily democratic, right? And at one time, they were amongst the least vaccinated communities in the United States. You know, very left, very unvaccinated. COVID happens and COVID vaccines become very much a right wing story. And that county, which was once incredibly unvaccinated, flips and becomes the most vaccinated (laughs) county. And they do it solely because being anti-vax is now a label of being right wing. So there's a a good news, bad news story here. The bad news is that when all of these things become more about ideology, I think there's no doubt that it's more difficult to change people's minds. The good news is there is this emerging evidence on how you can change people's minds and break down those echo chambers, and it can work. If you can just be exposed to another perspective, it can have an impact on your worldview. We can make a difference if we can think of creative ways to get these perspectives out there.
3: Now to be fair, vaccine hesitancy isn't just about ideology. As vice journalist Anna Merlin pointed out in the last episode, there are plenty of good reasons to not blindly trust the government or big pharma. And a little bit of skepticism can actually be a really good thing. But when no amount of evidence can change your mind, that's a serious problem.
0: I don't think there's any doubt that misinformation is killing people, and likely tens of thousands of people. Just in the context of vaccines, the head of the FDA has gone so far as to say that misinformation is contributing to the erosion in life expectancy in the United States. I mean, think about that, the head of the FDA saying that misinformation is contributing to the erosion in life expectancy.
1: I was very concerned about uh, the vaccines, even as they were being developed.
2: The thing is, people like Patrick Phillips, the doctor who lost his medical license, would almost certainly disagree with the notion that they're misinformed. His anti-vaccination views don't stem from conspiracy theories. They stem, at least in part, from his own experience.
1: My cousin, Stephen McDougall, uh, he's a 45-year-old father of two in Peterborough. And he received uh, one of these COVID vaccines uh, in the spring of 2021. And within three to five days, he was in the ICU. And a couple weeks after that, he ended up dying. On his death certificate, it says uh, myocarditis from the vaccine. And it was confirmed on the autopsy that his death was caused by the vaccine.
2: Although stories like this are incredibly rare, they do happen. I know that's true because it happened to my family. In May of 2021, my husband's brother went to the ER with an intense, persistent headache, nine days after he got his first dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine. The doctors there did blood work and found several signs of something called VITT, or VIT, essentially a condition created by the vaccine that causes blood clots. Despite the red flags, the hospital sent him home. Five days later, my healthy 41-year-old brother-in-law had a seizure and was rushed to the hospital. He died the following week, leaving behind a wife and two small children.
1: So the deaths are real, they're real people. Uh, It has affected real people's lives. They're not just numbers.
2: The Public Health Agency of Canada says that 442 people in Canada have died after getting the vaccine. But only four of those deaths were, quote, consistent with causal association from immunization. In contrast, Public Health says more than 51,000 people have died from COVID, so it's still much much safer to be vaccinated. What's interesting, though, is that Dr. Phillips doesn't necessarily dispute this. He's making a different argument altogether.
1: VACCINES ARE SOMETHING THAT ARE GIVEN TO HEALTHY PEOPLE, NOT SICK PEOPLE. AND SO IN THAT SENSE, THEY NEED TO BE ONE OF THE SAFEST INTERVENTIONS WE HAVE OUT THERE, BECAUSE YOU COULD KILL SOMEBODY, RIGHT? And as soon as there is, like, even one death caused by the vaccines, or the possibility of death, we can't mandate somebody to take something that could kill them. (laughs) Like, that's insane.
2: You could say that's an irresponsible argument, maybe even a dangerous one. But it's not misinformation. And some of the things Dr. Phillips was talking about at the start of the pandemic, like whether the lockdowns were causing more harm than good, are now legitimate debates in many policy circles. Were we too quick to label people like Dr. Phillips as misinformed?
1: There's two different worlds almost, right? And the sides aren't really acknowledged, which definitely does breed uh, some mistrust. and Because they're not even acknowledging the evidence that we're bringing forward. Uh, even if they reject it, that's one thing. But it, you need to at least acknowledge it and have some vigorous debate around it.
2: But early in the pandemic, there wasn't exactly time for prolonged debate. Our hospitals were on the verge of collapse, And public health officials were desperately trying to flatten the curve. And so doctors like Patrick Phillips, who pushed back against that approach, became ostracized from the medical community. Online, however, a very different story was unfolding. Dr. Phillips had lost one community, but gained another.
1: What was very encouraging and helpful for me was that I met up with Tens to hundreds of doctors from across the country that met up online and shared similar
3: views. Since losing his license, Dr. Phillips has become something of a celebrity in the anti-vax community. He has nearly 55,000 Twitter followers and does frequent speaking engagements. Scrolling through his Twitter feed, though, I noticed something else. Yeah, I believe that likely Pierre Trudeau is not Justin Trudeau's father. Over the past year, Dr. Phillips' Twitter feed has become something of a greatest hits of modern conspiracy theories. He's questioned whether a deadly earthquake in Turkey and Syria was caused by a U.S. military program.
1: If there's government
3: programs that have the ability to do that, then I think that's something that the public should be aware of. He shared conspiratorial videos from Fox News, Rebel Media, and Alex Jones' Infowars many of which have been clearly and unambiguously debunked by fact-checkers. And he shared posts denouncing trans groomers and questioning whether climate change is real. How does that happen?
1: I think that what ties these things together is that I'm gonna express my opinion based on what I've seen and what I've seen with my own eyes. And I was asked through the pandemic to kind of deny
3: my lying eyes. That experience seemed to be the catalyst for an increasingly conspiratorial mindset. And there's a chance social media just pushed him further down the rabbit hole. Imran Ahmed again.
4: The algorithm on social media platforms is like a laser guiding missile that will get the right content to the right people. That's the promise that they have. The problem is that it also allows for people with particular vulnerabilities to disinformation being targeted by those same algorithms as well.
3: There's plenty of evidence that social media is making us more polarized and more radical. But I think something else is going on here, too. Something more human.
2: The reason that conspiracy theorists are so compelling is because they have grand narratives. They have grand narratives that say, your life has not gone the way it thought it was going to. Not, nothing to do with you. It's because there are secret elites who are plotting to ensure that you can't be as successful. So that grand narrative then shapes explanations for everything, because once you believe in that grand narrative, then every other event that happens after that, you then need to fit into that grand narrative so that it makes sense.
3: But what happens when that grand narrative becomes increasingly extreme, and when the people who follow it are radicalized? He had been almost obsessed uh, with narratives around Muslims as a danger to uh, Quebec society. They're creating these spaces where their reality is the only reality. And it's very difficult, it feels like, to address these lies and these mistruths in this alternative world. And um, no one seems to have figured out how to do that. That's next time on Screen Time, the battle for reality. The Battle for Reality is written and produced by Mitchell Stewart. It's hosted by Sapria Dovedi and me, Taylor Owen. Our associate producer is Emily Morantz. Mixing and sound design by Mitchell Stewart. Our associate audio editor is Cameron McIver. Our executive producers are Stuart Cox and Laura Reguerre. Laurie Few is the executive producer of digital at TVO. Shariar Tadvidi is the managing editor of podcasts and digital video at TVO. If you want to know where we got our information from, we've included an annotated transcript in the show notes.